Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, hello there. Good afternoon. Good to have you with us. Good to be uh, spending some time with you yet once again here on this Thursday edition of Lifeline for April 20th. And uh, nice nice weather out today, so we're enjoying a little bit of sunshine for uh, a welcome respite here and hope Hopefully have the bulk of the rains behind us. Lots to talk about on today's program. I want to remind you, by the way, in fact, we just had a call from a listener a few moments ago that um, has been enjoying our uh, kind of week-long tribute to the late Dr. Charles Stanley. Uh, mentioned, by the way, that any of the broadcast material, we shared a sermon message of his on Tuesday and then an interview yesterday. Uh, we're going to take a little bit of a respite tonight because we've got Church of the Week coming up tonight in the second hour. But tomorrow night, oh, have we got a treat for you. Tomorrow night will be two solid hours of reprise conversations with Dr. Charles Stanley and the Craig Roberts that sounds like he is either uh, really, really drank too much coffee or might be 25 or 30 years younger. <laughs> you listen, you can figure out which of the two. So some good content is straight ahead coming up on the Friday edition of Lifeline tomorrow night at 5 o'clock. And again, remind you that all of the content that we're sharing always available at our Lifeline podcast. Just go to kfax.com. And uh, click on the heavily airbrushed photograph of me taken when I graduated from high school. And that will lead you to our uh, podcast page for Lifeline. Okay, let's get down to cases here this evening. A lot to talk about. And uh, as we kind of launch out our conversation, uh, you might have noticed there's an election coming up. Uh, You'd think it's tomorrow. It's actually, my goodness, uh, we're talking about the... November 2024 election, although we're going to get to the primaries here in California uh, beginning of next year. But that said, much talk about this. So let's kind of roll up our sleeves and get down to business. Joining us with some insights, we're joined by educator, constitutional lawyer, former speechwriter for Patrick Buchanan, author of the best-selling book, Take Back Education. Mr. Joe Murray joins us. Joe, how are you? I am doing wonderful tonight, Craig. How are you guys doing out there in wonderful, sunny California? We are doing well, and I was thinking of you uh, just a couple of days ago in in kind of digging through the audio archives here at KFAX, Uh looking for uh, content with Dr. Charles Stanley. Um, There's this special cabinet that has a a lot of this antique programming, and I thought of you because I ran across not one, but two past interviews that I did years ago with Patrick Buchanan when he was running for president. Well, there, you know, our paths crossed way back when, and we didn't even know it, Craig. <laughs> Undoubtedly so. <laughs> well, and, and for which that of which we are very grateful. All right. Speaking of paths crossing, just kind of some some random um, some random election related thoughts and questions for you. First, let me just get from from a because your background is not only in the law and in education, but also in journalism. You know, we kind of tick several boxes for you when it comes 
reference to the decision, uh, not the decision, the agreement that happened between Dominion and Fox on Tuesday. We kind of wondered they were going to go to trial Monday. They delayed it to Tuesday. Speculation, maybe they're talking. Maybe somebody's going to come to the table here and uh, and offer a settlement. Uh, they certainly did. It's uh, a pretty good economic ouch for Fox, even though, you know, $800 million um, represents only about a quarter of what they earn annually. It's about $4 billion grossing company. But still, that's got to hurt. What did you think of the of the agreement? Did Fox do the right thing in deciding to settle with Dominion? Oh, yeah. I mean, there was no doubt. I, you know, Craig, if we would have talked before uh, last week, I would have told you that thing would have never seen the inside of a courtroom for a trial. And like you said, I mean, it seems for the layman that's sitting there and they hear it come across the news feed, the amount on that money, everybody's like, oh, my Lord, that's a, that's a windfall. That's a Powerball jackpot, right? Uh, but in the long term for Fox, it's really a hiccup. And the damage that could have come out of this trial to Fox, I mean, all of its main uh, talent, was going to be wrapped up into this. Uh, and we also have a presidential election coming up, as you stated. And some of the tweets and some of the uh, messages that some of the talent had said about the GOP frontrunner, Mr. Trump, uh, it could have gotten ugly. And I think Fox really wanted just to go away. And they can get over the financial pinch uh, more so than they can if we've had weeks upon weeks of of witnesses testifying and evidence coming out and that dominating a news cycle, especially at CNN, MSNBC, uh, just kind of beating them over the head with it. And you also have to remember, too, on conservative media like Newsmax and uh, One News Network, these guys are, are, are itching at the opportunity to dethrone Fox. So Fox was going to get it at all angles, and it was in a vulnerable position. So settling was the right way. And I'm not saying they settled, and, and every lawyer will tell you this, well, settlement doesn't mean any admission of guilt, and that's true. Uh, but I think the settlement wasn't because Fox thought they couldn't win. I think they probably could have had a good case and, and a good defense. I think what were they going to, what was it going to cost them to win? Uh, more so in the court of public opinion. So I, I am not surprised at all. I would have been shocked if we were covering a trial right now. Yeah, and, and I have to agree with you. I, I think that, you know, while certainly eight hundred thousand dollars or eight hundred million dollars or whatever the number is is, is a, a, a pretty staggering figure, uh, it probably is paltry in comparison to the real damage that potentially would have been done to Fox had, as you point out, uh, there been an opportunity for every other network, and it's not just the other conservative networks, uh, OAN and Newsmax, but CNN, MSNBC, ABC, CBS, NBC, anybody who's trying to compete for the same set of eyeballs, um, I think they were going to make just an absolute heyday out of this at Fox's expense. And the cost of the goodwill and the erosion of the relationship between Fox and its viewers that's already pretty badly damaged by many of those uh, text messages that came to light and to see that, you know, Tucker Carlson, for example, doesn't apparently hold the ex-president in the high esteem that he would like you to believe on the air, uh, certainly seems to demonstrate the notion that had they allowed this thing to go to trial and all of this testimony 
testimony would have made its way public, plus all the documentation, um, it, it would have been pretty ugly. But I'm curious. Th- okay, so Dominion kind of behind them. They'll write the check. They'll smart for a while. They may have to deal with a lawsuit coming from uh, stockholders. But it's not yeah. over yet because there's another multi-billion dollar lawsuit waiting in the wings coming from Smartmatic. What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, it, it is going to probably go along the same way. Uh, and, and, and here, you know, uh, real briefly on Dominion as well, I mean, they get a, not only a big paycheck here, but they get what what they kind of wanted all along, which was the perception that the Fox coverage of Dominion was faulty. Because, like I told you, Fox probably made this decision not based upon whether or not they could win this trial, but based upon the collateral damage it would take to do it. But now Dominion's able to come out and argue, and I'm going to be honest, I don't know enough about this, but I, you know, I shouldn't say I don't remember enough about this from when this happened in 2020, but there were some legitimate concerns with Dominion. Now, were they as, 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 uh, maybe as scandalous as it was made out on the media? We don't know. Uh, but I think in this sense, with this big settlement and and the general public just seeing the the size of it, I think the claim that Dominion has some issues with its voting mechanisms is going to be gone now. Uh, So if we go into this next election, if there's any issue, they're going to be viewed as kind of right-wing fringe and not necessarily anything of credibility. And that goes to the the lawsuits coming up, as you were just referencing. Yeah, I think we're going to see more settlements. I mean, in terms of your business... Um, these lawsuits will not will not bring you anything that is good. Um, now, if you're doing it on principle, that's a different story. But you and I both know that in business, it's the bottom line that matters, and uh, they're not necessarily going to claim and stake a hill on principle if it's going to hurt them in in more ways than one. Now, slip slip on your 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 constitutional hat for a moment. Um, from your viewpoint, from a journalistic standpoint, how much damage does this do from a first First Amendment freedom of the press standpoint, and I and I pose that question because at the end of the day, if we honestly analyze what Fox does, with the exception of a couple of islands of content in mornings and in afternoons, it is really more opinion than it is news. And so if we couch much of what was being discussed on many of these programs, it would seem to fit more in the opinion slot than the hard news slot. So does a settlement like this that clearly Fox decided it's going to be cheaper for us in the overall picture to settle than to wage war, go to trial, and have everything else come out that, again, may do more damage to not only Fox's goodwill with its viewers, but also with its advertiser base. But does this ultimately scare journalists, be it print or broadcast, in terms of thinking, wow, do we really have to toe that tight of a line, even when it comes to our opinion-related programming, for fear that some big uh, corporation could file a multi-billion-dollar lawsuit against us, too? I don't think so. Well, let me speak with the folks at Fox. I don't think this is going to curtail them, because I'm sure they've been privy to these inside discussions. And and just watching some of the programming that has come on since, they haven't really tempered on terms of other issues, what they're talking about now. What about smaller networks or smaller, uh, maybe uh, folks that are syndicated columnists and such? I mean, yeah, I mean, that's that's always a threat, uh, because you, you're not going to be Fox when you have one big business 
going against another big business, at least it's an equal match. And we know David and Goliath ended well for David, but that's not always the case. (laughs) (laughs) So you're definitely going to be thinking twice. Um, You know, if you're a liberal journalist, I don't think you're thinking at all because uh, there seems to be a clear double standard in what they can what they can rate, what they can do. Because if you go back to the Russiagate scandals and you go back to how they handled the treatment of the Trump administration at the border, I mean, you had some clear when when you look at what the Twitter files were were shown. There's some clear, outright lies and manipulation that never see the light of day. And and I really think that this case was was a dual purpose. I think Dominion wanted a settlement, not to scare. Uh, again, I go back not to scare any journalists, but to give them the sense of legitimacy that they needed. Because uh, I think most people who had heard Dominion up until now still had a, a uh, kind of a, a doubt. We're, we're somewhat of a doubting Thomas here. Uh, but when you hear that number, and I know how it is in the lay folks, you're going to hear that huge number. You're going to hear settlement. And even though it's not an admission of guilt, everybody knows if you settle, oh, yeah, you must have been guilty. So Dominion is a win-win for them. They get a good paycheck, and they get the legitimacy that I think they lost during the 2020 election. Now, whether or not they had it, we don't know, because um, we're not going to find out, because that would have definitely come out at trial. And that's why I think you saw Dominion eager to settle as well. Yeah, so so, so, a, so to kind of follow the, the, the dotted line here, then, your, your conclusion is that there's likely, as, as things approach a trial date, it's likely to be a wash rinse and repeat issue with yeah. with the Smartmatic? Yes, I do. I don't think anybody involved wants a full-blown trial because if these things go on trial, like you said, it's bad for one, but it's also bad for the other because like, if Dominion would have went on trial, we would have been hearing all this testimony about their system. Mm-hmm. And how it's faulty, and and how it might be questionable, and if that going into the 2024 election, that would have given great fodder not just to President Trump, who I'm sure would use it if he lost, but you can't tell me that the Democratic nominee Joe Biden, or you never know RFK, uh, you can't tell me that they would not use that as ammunition as well. So, well, you know, and and based on on what we've seen in the last two election cycles, um, both in 20 and again in 22, I've got a lingering, growing feeling that. Uh, um, claims of uh, it, the books are being cooked, the things are being manipulated, the uh, illegals are voting, et cetera, et cetera. That, that kind of approach to losing may become more standard fare, which, you know, it, it creates problems in and of itself. Joe Murray is with us today. He is a constitutional lawyer, educator, best-selling author, and uh, joins us for some analysis of the big headlines of the week. When we come back, it has been 60 years since a Kennedy sat in the White House, and there's another Kennedy who thinks, in a couple of years, I think I'd like to get the name back on the plaque on the door. Let's see how practical that might be as our conversation with best-selling author Joe Murray, author of Take Back Education, continues on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. So uh, news reporting that likely Joe Biden may announce as early as tomorrow that he will be running for re-election. Uh, oddly, not the only Democrat who would like to uh, take a seat at the uh, Oval Office in uh, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. In fact, as I mentioned before the break, um, it's been 60 years since a Kennedy has occupied that office. But uh, one Kennedy, um, whose father spent a lot of time in that office since his brother was the president and he was the attorney general, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., has uh, 
tossed his hat in the ring. What are your thoughts on this? I mean, uh, certainly the Kennedy name has got a lot of pull, but it's got a lot of pull with a much older generation. And um, while certainly Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has bounced around um, politics himself, uh, is this a long shot? Is this tossing a a lifeline rope to the Democrats, uh, thinking that a matchup between an 82-year-old Joe Biden against Donald Trump might uh, might not bode very well for Democrats uh, next year? What are your thoughts? You know, for someone like you and I, Craig, you know, think of the Kennedys and, you know, Camelot comes to mind. But if you talk to the younger generation, the generation I deal with, or even those in the 20s and 30s, they have no idea what Camelot is, both in Kennedyville and then actually in, in fairy tale. Um, they don't know it. What do they know about Kennedy? It's what they know about everything in the past that has been demonized, that Kennedy, Kennedy is a womanizer that was sexist. So that Kennedy name is not an automatic ticket like it was just, say, maybe 20 years ago. But there's a big but here. Uh, RFK gives an interesting dynamic. Now, he is a long shot. Uh, anytime you're going up against an incumbent president in the party, it, it is going to be tough because the entire weight of the machine is going to be against you. And even his family has, has uh, kind of voiced some skepticism. But what does RFK offer, or RFK Jr. offer? Um, he's a unique individual that you can't pigeonhole. He is a radical, well, I shouldn't say radical, that's too strong. He's a firm environmentalist. Uh, but he's also a clear non-interventionist foreign policy, uh, and, and interesting where he fits, where he is very much against the forced vaccination of people in the country. So where do you put him, right? So where do you put? Him? I think he's going to be hard to pigeonhole. Now, will that fly in the Democratic Party? I don't know. If you have somebody else joining, I already have. I think he's going to be one of the credible people joining. Long shot credible, but definitely more credible than that other lady who I can't remember off the top of her head. Marianne Williamson. Yes, Marianne <laughs> Williamson. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. She's you know she's who she is. But now Kennedy is going to be a long shot. Uh, candidate there, but if you get someone like Gavin Newsom, who may or may not join, you get some other people that are now see Biden as vulnerable to join, anything can happen. If it's a one-on-one, if it's Kennedy, Biden, Biden wins. What RFK needs is some other Democrats to join in, and then it becomes a much more interesting dynamic. And I don't, I think that's a possibility because, you know, you talked about Biden uh, going to be announcing his candidacy for the senator of Delaware, oh, no, I mean president, but he, he is going to do it in a video. Okay, he's not even having a a rally. He's not even having uh, a, a kind of a press conference or a greeting with supporters. He's doing it in a video. So if this is the key that Biden's going to go back in the basement for the next two years, I think Democrats are going to be very wary. That worked during COVID because mostly everybody was in the basement. But now that COVID is clearly over, they expect the campaign to be out in the country. And can Joe Biden deliver that? That is a big question. I don't know if he can. So, yes, RFK is a long shot. But you know what? Anything can happen. Remember, miracle on ice. Miracles do happen. So you never know. This is true. And, you know, it it also, I think, raises some questions in terms of at this stage in the game, even trying to extrapolate uh, any sense of direction based on what the polling is showing. I mean, I know certainly some polls are indicating that uh, that Trump in a a Trump um, 
Biden rematch that uh, Trump would win. I, I think it's a little early to tell. Um, yeah. I have to wonder if these polls are largely being responded to by just Democrats and Republicans. And I think the important thing to remember is, and this might be solid advice for any of the candidates, and it, and it kind of goes back to the, the, the Nixonian approach to this. Nixon uh, famously once said to win the primary, you have to, as a Republican, you have to run hard to the right and to win the general election, you have to run back toward the center. And I think we need to be mindful. Uh, yes, you're going to find very powerful and strong opinions on both sides, Democrat and Republican, as to who their guy is for 2024. But it's the mushy middle. It's the independents. It's the undeclared. It's people that are associated with all the other parties that are out there that really make the difference. Because I think it isn't it a truism, Joe, that frankly, in America today, neither party can win the high office strictly based on their own voter rolls, meaning if only Republicans turned out to, to elect a Republican president, that president could not win because they can't deliver enough votes without appealing to the independents. And therein lies the sticky wicket, as my grandmother used to say. Well, you know, and I'm going to take somewhat of a pessimist, uh, pessimistic approach here. My view is, you know, studying not as someone that is, uh, is a participant in the political process, but someone that has studied it since God knows when, I'm seeing those independents become smaller and smaller, that group. We don't have that. I think you and I are both right. As far back as even 2008, 2012, those independents were key, but there is something that has happened in this country. And I don't know if it's a long-term trend or if it's a short-term trend, but that center is, is getting very small. And that's why you see now this election this year or for the presidential election in 2024, it's going to be only fought in a handful of states. It's going to be it's going to be Michigan. It's going to be Wisconsin. It's going to be Pennsylvania. It's going to be Arizona, and uh, you know maybe Florida. I doubt Florida. Florida's pretty much red, but it's going to be these in Nevada, these swing states. Because what you just said, I think, is going to happen. It's going to be: Can you get Republicans or Democrats in those states to turn out? And and I and I want to do say one quick thing about the polls too. And I and you know, I put my bias out there. I thought Trump was the politician. The Trump policies were great. The Trump politician, oh, you know, I still get a little bit of heartburn on that. But I think the policies were sound. I don't know if he's going to be able to change that or not. I really don't. But why do you think Trump is polling so well right now? Now, I'm going to tell you my theory on this. When he announced back in November, it was like crickets. He was not getting any coverage in the media from November on. It was almost as if the media said, we're just going to black him out. Going to make him just leave the psyche. Then came Alan Brack. Okay, so Trump has been out of our out of our line of sight in the mainstream media. Okay, since he really maybe mid midsummer last year, even when he announced wasn't back in, but now all of a sudden he has been splashed back into the media because of Alan Bragg. And I think what has happened is most people those those very few independents have looked at this and said, you know what. I don't necessarily like what he has done in terms of being as a person, but this is a really sham case, and they're only going after him because of who he is. And I think that has garnered some sympathy, and I think he has played that very well. So the question for the Trump campaign is, how do you turn the page and keep that sympathy? 
because if you go back to the 2016 playbook, you lose those few independents where I think you're right, you need. So it's going to be interesting to see how Trump pans out as he goes on to these next years. I think Ron DeSantis is going to join, and the numbers are clear right now. DeSantis is not the threat that people thought he was once going to be. His record has come out. Uh, The indictment has taken a lot of his thunder. Can he recoup? I don't know. But Trump needs to run as a front runner. And, you know, the thing that I always tell everybody that I meet, uh, you know, young and old, is the old Winston Churchill quote, which if you if you stop to throw a stone at every barking dog, you'll never reach your destination. And if Trump can resist that tendency to stop and throw a stone at every barking dog, I think it will be interesting. I think he gets the GOP nomination, and I think he, Biden's not going to be able to keep up with him on the campaign trail. I, I would concur with you on a couple of points. Uh, the ability, just based on past track record, and it's demonstrable. You know, the 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 evidence is abundant. The capacity to not throw a stone at every barking dog is not in his DNA. That that will not happen. I I just I don't see it. Uh, I I think the other potential challenge here is that you know was was DeSantis for a nanosecond maybe a a viable competitor? Yeah, but but he seems to be stepping on his own coattails right now. Um, and and even as we look at Governor Newsom, I, you know, when when he when he first made a foray into giving speeches about what was going on in Florida or Texas, I thought, wait a minute, don't you understand what the city limits are here? You you work in Sacramento, don't you? Yeah, you ought to be worried about what's going on in your own state. Oh, that's right. You must have aspirations for a higher office. Why does it feel as if even our own governor is is sort of uh, you know testing the waters, or at least if not for a 24 run, maybe a 20, uh, 28 run, who knows? But uh, I, I think the challenge is going to be as more of this goes to trial. Now, it's probably going to be a year before um, everything related to the uh, New York DA's case goes forward. But remember, you still have Georgia. You still have um, the uh, the whole issue related to the um, top secret documents. Um, I, I think there's still some rough waters ahead. What's going to be interesting to see is who comes in, which of the sharks show up and decide that there's enough blood in the water to try and step in and, and see if they can't take advantage of it. So far, if on the Republican side the only name is Ron DeSantis, I think it's going to be an uphill battle for him. And I think this might be a repeat of 92 when you had, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was Paul Songus who was the front runner and everybody thought he was great. And then he went sideways. And then all of a sudden you were left with a bunch of B-rated candidates, which surprise, surprise, happened to be Bill Clinton, who then surprised us all and turned that that, that this misfortune for Songus into a golden opportunity. And I think that's what we're going to have to see here. How many Republicans are going to sit out because either A, they don't think they can beat Trump, or B, they don't want to have to go through the thrashing and possibly be forever damaged by Trump. And, you know, if somebody wants to take a gamble and maybe go toe-to-toe and hope that something implodes, you might be able to, to give him a run for his money. I don't see anyone that can do that. No, but but here here is a possible issue here, and then I'm going to take a quick time out. Yeah. Here's a possible issue that could complicate things. And I don't know that it's singularly just a question of how many Republicans that would not be willing to support him to maybe the broader question of because of the repeated comments related to 2020 that just can't let go, how many Republicans sit out 
altogether because they're convinced their guy can't get a fair shake. And so as a result, they're not even going to bother going to the polls because it's why bother? It's all rigged anyway. Right. And I wonder whether or not that could be a factor, because you have to be mindful that when it came to delivering the goods, here's the fact of the matter. He did not win the popular vote back in 16. He did not win in 18, didn't win in 20, arguably, nor in the midterms in 22. So the track record in that regard is not good. And if enough Republicans decide, I'm just going to lay out and not even vote because I don't believe in the system anymore, that could really spell disaster. That's a very valid point. And, and I think what we have to see here, you know, it's, it's hard to look at this because we are in such a weird spot as a country. I really don't think, Craig, that we're ever going to see anything like the Republican Revolution in 94, the Tea Party in 2010. I think Congress from now on in is going to be only the slimmest of majorities because we have become so divided. Uh, I don't see any any party being able to harness all of that, especially, too, when you look at how the president is elected with the Electoral College. So. You know, playing devil's advocate, I don't know if that matters as much in the sense that I don't I think everybody now understands that the Republicans are the minority and we have to play the game the founders gave us, which in our wisdom is is a very smart game. But I think where you are right, and this is the danger of the 2020 bringing it up, if you keep repeating it, and I think this is the danger, people are going to start to believe that, well, the deep state, whoever you want to say, whoever they is, will never let him win. I think that's a brilliant point. And you start to demoralize your own base. You don't. You, there's a fine line between firing them up, saying we're going to take back the system, and a fine line between saying the system will never work in our favor, so it's already over before it starts. So how that plays out, I, I don't think anyone can, can make a guess. It all depends on how chaotic these next few months are under the Biden administration. Well, and that takes me to back back to my initial point, and that is that with the margins as narrow and thin as they are in terms of control on, on either side, I mean, I'm looking at Gallup now, you know, six of one, half a dozen of the other, but, you know, I, I, I'm showing both parties between Republican and Democrat pretty neck and neck. Yeah, there, there's a little bit of margin of difference between Republican and Democrat, but it's not huge. And and of course, those numbers, if you factor in the the, the potential inaccuracies, uh, could be neck and neck enough that it doesn't take, even though that, that percentile of independence may be narrowing, it doesn't take that many to throw the election. So then the question becomes, um, are you going to convince an independent to either vote for your great-great-great-grandfather on one hand or vote for the guy that's twice impeached and once indicted? I mean, that's the challenge, and that's where I think there needs to be a real deft touch here in terms of who gets in, why they get in, and, you know, potentially if we see a repeat of of uh, six years ago where everybody and his brothers and there's 16 candidates up on the main stage for the, uh, the presidential primary, I think that's going to be more disastrous than anybody realizes. Joe Murray is with us tonight. Joe, um, you got five more minutes? Stay with me for one second. We're going to get uh, take care of a little bit of business. We'll be back with some closing thoughts as Lifeline continues. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right. Welcome back to the conversation. 545 here on this Thursday edition of Lifeline. Reminder coming up tomorrow night, both hours on the program, 5 and 6 o'clock. We're going to have uh, our continued uh, special tribute to the uh, the late Dr. Charles Stanley and a couple of, uh, couple of good interviews. That'll be tomorrow night on Lifeline at 5 o'clock. Uh, Joe Murray, constitutional lawyer. His book, by the way, you can get it at Amazon and elsewhere. Take Back Education. Joe, final question for you. You mentioned uh, Ron DeSantis. Uh, I'm wondering from your perspective, um, his battle with Disney. Now, some think it's a Mickey Mouse move that's not going to resonate with Disney lovers across the country. Others say it resonates very well with conservatives. Yet others say, well, wait a minute. So why are we picking on a, a company? And shouldn't we be allowing corporations to be independent and free thinking? And so it's kind of a, a mixed bag here. Is he, in your opinion, helping himself or hurting himself by uh, going fisticuffs with the big mouse? You know, I worked with the American Family Association when they started their big Disney boycott back in the early part of the 2000s. Sure. And I'm going to tell you, taking on Disney is never easy. Even if you can win, the amount of resources, time, and energy it takes, it's huge. I mean, you're going after a behemoth. And here's the problem with this 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 kind of argument. It sells well in Florida because the Floridians understand it. They're, they have Disney in their backyard. They study it. But it's way too nuanced to sell to the general public across the country. All you see is Mickey Mouse being attacked. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it takes too much time to educate people as to some of the woke policies. Believe me, at AFA, we were ringing the alarm bell about Disney long before even the original Little, Little Mermaid. We were worried about some of the subliminal messages that were going in there. We were trying to argue it. The problem with Disney, it's a brand name that has been etched into our psyche as Walt Disney, as being that place, the happiest place on earth, where you go and you, you go to get away from your problems because it's pure, it's joy. And you just haven't had enough exposure of what is going on behind the scenes at Disney to change that national perception. So right now, this is pigeonholing, a pigeonholing uh, DeSantis. Among conservatives that are following this issue, it probably is raising his stock. But that is such a small number in terms of a national election. So the more time he wastes on this, and I don't mean waste in the sense that it's not worth fighting, but if you're trying to run a national campaign, you need to be bringing, talking about issues that matter across the board here. And, and even though this issue of wokeism is an important issue this go around, this is so specific and so minute to Florida people are going to say, well, if it's a Florida issue, why doesn't he just stay in Florida and fix it? Yeah, yeah. Good, good, good thoughts. Well, we, as always, um, honored to spend some time with you and appreciate the insights. There he is, constitutional lawyer, educator, best-selling author, Joe Murray. Again, his book is called Take Back Education. Joe, as always, we appreciate the time. 546 from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right. Welcome back to the conversation. As uh, you may or may not be aware, and if you're not, you should be aware that um, April is Abortion Recovery Awareness Month. And it's an important month because, you know, as we, we focus on the sanctity of life in January, tied in with the anniversary of the tragic Roe v. Wade decision of 1973, um, there's the aftermath of all of this. And there is the recognition that 
tens of hundreds of thousands of women down through the years have, for whatever the reason, by whatever the motivation, by whatever uh, means, had abortions, and they struggle. They struggle oftentimes and suffer in silence, guilt, shame, health concerns, um, impact on the dynamic within the family and relationships, even their relationship with God. And so understanding that this pain does not need to be something permanent, critically, critically important. Valerie Hill joins us now with Real Options. Valerie, always a privilege to spend some time with you. Talk to us a bit about a lot that takes place within uh, the ministry of Real Options, because not just helping women who are today in that crisis situation, and they've suddenly, uh, you know, discovered that they have an unplanned pregnancy, they're not sure what to do, they're getting conflicting advice, they're getting all of these these, uh, messages coming from mainstream media, even our government to push forward with having an abortion. And so, obviously, organizations like Real Options is there to help them think through, pray through, work through those kind of of life-altering decisions. But what about the woman who's been down this road, made that decision, and now been living with this weight for maybe years, decades? Thanks so much, Craig, for having me on tonight. I appreciate it. And, well, I can speak from firsthand experience. Uh, I wish I didn't have this this testimony, but I I do, and God uses it for others now. And uh, I know what it's like to be uh, a woman in crisis and feel that abortion is my best option. And as a single mom coming out of an abusive marriage uh, many, many years ago, I made that decision, and I went against my moral code, my upbringing, my Catholic background. Uh, I knew it was a wrong decision, yet I, I gave in to the fear and the lies uh, that our culture tells us. And today with the abortion pill being so rampant through the mail and off college campuses, um, women do feel uh, it, it sounds so simple, it sounds so easy, and then they live with this fallout. So there's, you know, like you said, women suffer. They, women and men suffer from past abortion decisions and the loss of their children. Uh, and we have wonderful programs to help them walk through and give them hope and healing uh, for the restoration that they need. And I, I was one that needed that when I came to serve at Real Options over 33 years ago and so grateful that I was able to help start our first post-abortion support groups because secrets breed shame and we need to be free and know know that we're forgiven and walk through the process of facing, facing our abortion, facing the loss of our child and grieving grieving the loss that we can be free, free from the shame, free from the depression, free from the guilt, free from the suicidal thoughts and the drug addiction or alcoholism and all the different things that plague women and men. And women were created by God to be nurturers. And so we violate um, that. We violate our motherhood. And we bury, try to bury that grief, and it doesn't stay put very well. And so there are, like you said, so many thousands 
of women across our country in our churches hurting uh, from past abortions and real options has hope to offer we have uh, hope support groups every Thursday night online um, and people are joining us even from other countries I think a woman joined us from Brazil last week uh, it's pretty cool that we can do these things online and, and have such a reach beyond the Bay Area. And that we've got ongoing Bible studies for women that they can join. And our Rachel Vineyard retreats, which we do several times a year. They're bilingual. Men as well as women are encouraged to, to join us. Couples come together. And uh, these are just in a great setting of a local retreat center, a very safe setting with a wonderful team of facilitators um, trained to help them walk through the stages of grieving and being set free from that grief to be able to forgive themselves. And that's where women get stuck. I got stuck on not forgiving, not knowing how to forgive myself. I came into a local church, got saved uh, three months after my abortion in, in 1989 or 84, I'm sorry, in 1984. And I'm grateful to God that I got saved and started to learn the word, but I did not know, uh, you know, that abortion grief just came up even stronger now, the guilt, the shame um, that, that went along with it. And I had no idea that by not forgiving myself, I was just walking in pride. I was just adding another sin on top of all of that guilt and shame. So women and men need to come and be able to be free, be set free, face, face the guilt, and don't let the enemy keep you in bondage because God has so much more for his people and he has a purpose. And he will turn those ashes into beauty if we give them to him and and trust him with them. And I want to remind our listeners, by the way, that if, if this describes you or someone that you know that has struggled with this, carried this guilt and shame for many, many years, and you thought it's just your, your penalty, your cross to bear, so to speak, that there is hope, there is healing, there is recovery available, and uh, you can find it all through uh, many aspects of ministry, both for men and women, um, by going online to realoptions.net. That's realoptions.net. Valerie, in a minute or two, I understand that there are some ongoing needs right now at Real Options. You know, uh, more women are, are, are being confronted with the issue of abortion, particularly as we've seen the, the direction of the hard push left in the state of California. Um, take a minute, if you would, and tell us what some of the current needs are and how our listeners can be supporting and praying for your ministry and what God is doing through Real Options. Oh, thank you so much. Well, we have so much going on. Our education department has exploded with opportunities, which are fantastic to be in schools and provide sexual risk avoidance curriculum and healthy relationship curriculum to students from fifth through 12th grade in public and private schools, youth groups and churches. So we're looking for people who would like to be trained and certified and be contract educators to join the team. That's a paid position. Um, we would love to find youth pastors in the East Bay 
uh, particularly men of color who might also want to be trained as as educators because a lot of these kids are in fatherless homes and they need a, a male role model to hear uh, this curriculum from. It would impact their lives in such a beautiful way. So those are two of our needs for education. And we also have openings for staff management in our clinics. Um, and these are all, this is a paid position and there's more than one opening there. And nurses, pro-life Christian nurses, Catholic nurses, we are looking for you to come and learn the amazing skill of obstetrical ultrasound that you will be trained in um, and certified in once you come to work here at Real Options. And we are just excited to welcome more people to join the team to do the hands-on work to help us safeguard lives. The students' lives that are being safeguarded the patients that we serve and their pre-born children are being safeguarded. So it's a privilege to do this work here in the Bay Area. It's, it's as we say, hard ground, Craig. It's not an easy place, but, you know, God prepared us to be here. Absolutely. And, and, and you know, not, not an easy pay, place to, to do this kind of work, but an overwhelmingly rewarding thing to do. And uh, if, if any of what Valerie has just described is something that tugs at your heart, you think, you know, I'd like to get involved at a deeper level and make a significant difference. I want to invite you to get more information. You go to friendsofrealoptions.net. It's a great place to get details about not only job opportunities, but also support opportunities for this wonderful ministry. Friendsofrealoptions.net. That's friendsofrealoptions.net. Our thanks to Valerie Hill, CEO of Real Options, for that update. Date. Six o'clock from K, actually six oh one. We'll take a time out. When we come back, Church of the Week a conversation with Pastor Alan Coleman from Bay Hills Church as Lifeline continues.